If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome you to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Got a great guest this week, Nell Scavell. Now, Nell is a longtime TV writer. You probably have seen her because she's been on the talk show circuit quite a bit over the last couple of months, plugging a great book that she just wrote called Just the Funny Parts and a Few Hard Truths About Sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. Well, she's also a longtime TV writer. She's written for Gary Shandling, for David Letterman, also Murphy Brown, Coach, The Simpsons, NCIS, The Muppets, The Kennedy Center, Honors, Monk, Space Ghost, Coast to Coast, Sibs, and so many more. She's got a great story to tell, so let's meet Nell Scavell. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say I loved your book. Thank I really you. did love your book. And as someone who has been in those writing rooms for all of those years, I found it rang very true, you know, both the positive and the negative. Uh, we'll get into a lot of that. But first, whenever I have a writer on as a guest, I always ask about their background because every writer broke in through a different method. Right. Okay. And you started out, this is near and dear to my heart, of course, because of my baseball announcing, but you started out... As a sports writer. I did. <laughs> I did, which was actually really good training for being in writer's rooms. Uh, oh, yeah. You talk about uh, a boys club. Yeah. <laughs> also, I learned how to drink really crappy coffee during my sports writing days, and that, that's another skill that it, it's worth having. Uh, but I did. I grew up in Boston in the late 60s, and uh -huh. I loved sports. The teams, the Red Sox, the Celtics, and the Bruins you know, were, were all uh, world champions or close to Close world, to it, yeah. Well, to Boston it. got in the World Series sometimes, yes. They did. Yes. Yeah. And it's so funny because when they eventually started winning, friends would call me and say, like, you must be thrilled. And it's like, I wanted Carl Yastrzemski to win. <laughs> I wanted Carlton Fisk and, you know, uh, Rice and Evans and all those people to win. So uh, it, it wasn't as satisfying as uh, my friends hoped. Now, did you get to go Do into locker rooms? Do you find that, rooms? too, with, with teams that, like, you're – you're more connected with the older teams and the more recent teams? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a longtime Dodger fan back 
from the days when they didn't have billions of dollars and could just go out and buy players right. that they needed. Um, and yeah, and they became your guys because they were there year after year. Now you're rooting for the, the team logos as yeah. opposed to players. That's right. And it's just not the same anymore. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I still do love the Celtics. So, yeah, don't tell anybody, but so do I. I love their <laughs> announcer, Sean Grandy, is like the best radio basketball announcer in the world. So I, I listen a lot to the Celtics. Uh, but don't tell anybody, especially here in Los Angeles, okay? No, no. Yeah. Uh, so from sports writing, how did you work your way into television? Well, I came in through journalism in general, through magazine writing. I... Um, moved to New York in the mid 80s and so the I caught this lucky wave of spy magazine comes along oh that was so funny yeah that was that was like the smarter version of the national lampoon well it it's really presaged the internet when you think about Jezebel or Gawker like the spy was doing that sort of um exposés on the rich and the powerful, uh, that kind of satirical, snotty attitude. Look, the very first spy issue, um, the cover story was the top 10 most embarrassing New Yorkers. And guess who was one of them? <laughs> you know, and their spies the one who dubbed Donald Trump the short-fingered vulgarian. Um, that's where all the hand stuff came from. Oh, well, Although, then, as, then the magazine should be enshrined. <laughs> <laughs> Although Graydon Carter, who was the founder, um, always points out that the important part of that phrase is vulgarian, <laughs> not short-fingered. <laughs> Paul Rudnick wrote for that, too, Paul didn't he? Ru- yeah, yeah, great yeah. people. Kurt Anderson was one of the other founders, and you know, I just wanted to write like him because he was so smart and used words like zeitgeist. (laughs) Um, So, and, you know, I always hope that everyone in their 20s has that opportunity to work at a place that pushes them towards being, um, I hate the word edgier, but, you know, more truthful and... Kind of inspiring. Funnier because, you know, so much of comedy... You wonder, like, is this funny or is it mean? You know, is this funny or just unfair? And to work surrounded by people who are going, no, that's funny. Keep going. (laughs) Keep pushing. You can hit that harder was invaluable. And then from there, you went to Vanity Fair. Yeah, I kind of got poached from Vanity Fair. Um, Tina Brown called me and offered me more money than I ever thought I would make. Which was forty grand a year, uh-huh. and um, which this is what now the early seventies, eighty seven, the early seventies. Oh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was a prodigy. <laughs> okay, um, so okay, so you're you're doing that, uh, and my guess is that the lure of television was we made more than forty thousand dollars a year in television. Uh, it was not. Uh, in fact, I had no concept that television had writers. I grew up on the East Coast. I stayed on the East Coast, and um, I didn't know anyone who worked in Hollywood. Uh, and one day, though, I bumped into an editor friend who said to me, 
Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. (laughs) (laughs) And I swear to God, it was the first time it ever occurred to me. So what did you do? Did you write a spec script? I did. I mean, I was from Spy. Around the time of Spy was when Harvard started sending members of the Lampoon to the Hollywood. Simpsons and everywhere else. Yes. Right. That, mm-hmm. So that machine was, was now picking up steam and they were, you know, getting a foothold in the industry. And I was not on the Lampoon, I, um, but I did know someone who was, who sent some of my spy clippings to an agent who said, yeah, you could, I think you can do this too. And I wrote a spec for It's Gary Shandling's show. Okay. Now, by the way, Cheers was like the big show at the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was the go-to spec script, right? It reminds me, did, did I ever reject you? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I, I come upon people at parties and, you know, very successful writers, and they go, you know, you rejected my Cheers script in 1984. It's like, oh, God. And they go, no, no, but you were very nice and, yeah. you know. Um, as opposed to, we wrote, my partner David Isaacs and I, our first spec was a Mary Tyler Moore show, which got rejected by Mary Tyler Moore, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it was rejected by David Lloyd. And, um, and he basically said, this is just a piece of shit. This is, this is really terrible. And then years later, I worked with David on Cheers, and at one point I mentioned, you know, you rejected a script of mine. And he said, well, then... It, Probably was a piece of shit. Thank you, Davis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Those are the, the harshest criticism I ever got was a, a few years ago. I've never told this story. It's not in the book. I, um, I helped out Jane Fonda with a speech. Wow. And in return, she was, you know, was very gracious. What can I pay you? And I said, look, there's a script in a, a movie I wrote that you'd actually be great for a part. How about we barter? I helped you with this. You'll read my script. Uh-huh. <laughs> she said, great. So she reads the script, and she called me and goes, never show this to anyone again. <laughs> 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 it was so over-the-top harsh. <laughs> I still well, like it. We wrote, Don't you still like your spec script? Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because... We wrote a spec Rhoda after that, and we submitted it to Rhoda, and it was rejected by Charlotte Brown, who was the showrunner. And Charlotte Brown is now my neighbor. She lives two houses over. And we become friends, and to this day, I'll see her and I'll say, Charlotte, take a look one more time. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just one word. I think you're going to find there, there's some stuff in there. There's some potential. You, you, you know, just one more read. Well, I do think one of my definitions of a writer is someone who can read something they wrote 10 years ago and then declare there was some good stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> that at the time they thought was genius. No, but it's always like, it's hard. There, it's, there's, it, it's subjective, but since it comes from your brain, you're always going to see something right. appealing in it. Right. Although, do you find, as we go off on tangents here, do you find if you watch an old episode of a show that you wrote years ago, that you're able to really enjoy it? Or do you do you go, 
oh, God, give me one more pass. If I could take one more day to just go over and fix this joke and fix this turn yeah. and that type of thing. Um, so do you, can you watch your shows from years ago and just enjoy them for what they are? Oh, I, I typically don't. Um, there's, I remember I got called in to do a commentary, an audio commentary on the Simpsons episode I wrote in the second Uh season. And it was probably 15 years after I'd written it. And it was fun. It was me and Mike Reese, Al Jean, and um, Matt Groening was there too. Uh And so we sit down to watch an episode I haven't seen in 15 years. And if you listen to the audio track, it's mostly me laughing, (laughs) (laughs) you know, at a lot of my own jokes. So uh, I think, um, and then I recently watched a few Sabrina's because um, a festival wanted to show one and asked me for recommendations. And again, created that show, by the way, did yeah, and was the showrunner. um, And then, I I was actually pleasantly surprised. And one of the things that I had not remembered, so Sabrina debuts in, I think, 96. So 22 years ago. And, like, I'm watching one episode which had um, Chris Elliott was the guest star. Okay. It's called Mars Attracts, and it's about uh, Sabrina, the Spellman family, goes, takes a ski vacation on Mars, which has you know, the greatest skiing in the universe. Uh And at one point, Sabrina goes off with a cute ski instructor and they're having a picnic in a crater. And at one point, like the uh, Mars probe flies by and they (laughs) wave and (laughs) smile at it. And the instructor makes a move. He leans in to give Sabrina a kiss and she pulls away. And then he says... I sense you're uncomfortable. Do you want to go back to the lodge? And I was just dumbstruck. I was like, that was modeling consent for all those young girls Uh way before the time. And I I do think that's one of the reasons why having a female showrunner for a TGIF show that's geared to girls was important is because I had been in those situations and I, I wanted to instruct. So you're now in television, you're doing coach, you're doing Newhart, you're doing NCIS, which is like, <laughs> well, wow, how do you, <laughs> how do you make that change? Quite a bit later. Um, Although NCIS was a funny show back when Don Belisario was running it. Uh-huh. Um, it was the characters had a lot of depth to them. Michael Weatherly is hilarious. Polly Perrette is hilarious. Okay. Brian Dietzen was hilarious. So they had they had some real comedy chops on that show. Okay. So you're doing that and making a very nice living in television. And again, I don't know exactly which show followed which show. And you mentioned you did The Simpsons. But then you went back and became a writer on The David Letterman Show. <laughs> and, and your agent basically said, well, the good news is you got the offer, uh, but you don't want to take it, right? Right. But you did. Well, I mean, Letterman was a giant. I'm sure you grew up sure. watching mm-hmm. him and absorbing. I mean, he. it's interesting because I was talking about Spy before. I mean, Letterman was sort of the TV equivalent of 
that spy right. tone. Right. That sort of sneering, mistrusting. Snarky, irreverent. Yeah. Yeah. Not trusting authority and that sort of thing. Yeah. Plus, so many great writers went through that um, machine, you know, and I think there there was, I wanted to be associated with that group of writers. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, after, so I'd been in sitcoms for a few years, and then I took a step back into late night prime, uh, late night, um, then I took a step back into late night comedy, which isn't done very often. Right. Usually right. you go, you go the, the other, other way. way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you were there only five months. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was the dream job that turned into a nightmare. Um, it, uh, it, it was a, a difficult experience, and I actually devote three chapters in the book to trying to sort it all out. Um, but, you know, there were a few things. Look, creatively... After you've written full scripts, it's hard to go back to... Just jokes. Just jokes. And I love writing jokes, don't get me wrong. But if you have 14 writers and a top 10 list, like if you get in a joke a night, that's a good night. And, you know, we were doing a lot of quizzes then. And again, you know, you get one in. Uh, I did some writing for the monologue and loved when Dave did my jokes. But again, you know, you're just a cog in this, in this great wheel. So that was an issue. And then the other issue was that, um, look, the, the show was on for 33 years. It had nine female writers. Wow. And zero writers of color. Wow. And if you add up all the years that the nine women were on staff together, because a lot didn't last long, like me and the, right. some others, um, they, there were individual white men who were on the show longer than the tenure of all those women. Well, I mean, what's even more amazing about that is that one of the women was Meryl Marco. Who's a genius. Who is a genius and who basically was the creative guiding force yeah. of the show. I know. Wow. I know. Yeah. How a- was Dave to work with? How did you get along with him oh I, yeah, he was he was super nice to me i mean he'd stop by my office and say things like um do you need anything can i get you some soup <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was, yeah dave would you go down <laughs> to the carnegie deli <laughs> uh so he was he you know and look he's i watched him each night and he always made Every joke funnier. I mean, he's he's really good at what he does. Um, I, you know, I think when, look, in 2009, he sat at his desk and told the world, I have had sex with women I work with. Uh, this was a surprise to no one who ever worked <laughs> on that show. Um, and, and so it was, it was a, Weird place to work if you were a woman, um, and very much a, an old boys' club, young boys' club. I young guess. boys' like, club, like being stuck in a frat, I guess. Yeah, and even beyond that, because look, when I wrote an article about it for Vanity Fair, where I talk about sexual favoritism, which really turned your your career and your life around. That article, 
Yeah, yeah. it did. But, yeah. but you know, one of the things um, I say in my book is I was at Letterman in 1990, and Nita Hill doesn't come along for another couple of years. So I didn't even have the words to express what I was feeling. I, you know, I couldn't say, well, clearly there's a, you know, this is a hostile work environment where there's sexual harassment and sexual favoritism. All I knew was this is fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Like that was the only technical term I had for working on that show. So let's talk a little bit about what it is like for a woman. I mean, it's interesting for me because I'm in a, in a sense, sort of on both sides where, you know, I was the white male showrunner and I have a daughter who is a TV comedy writer. So I'm really seeing both sides. Um, talk a little bit about what it was like for a woman, especially being the only woman in a room of of male writers. Well, it depends on the showrunner, you know, and right. and when I sat in a room with Barry Kemp on Coach, who Barry Barry's created, great. He's it's great. Well, yeah. you know, he's special, he's unique and he listens and he includes uh he ran I think a meritocracy. You know, the best joke won. Um and but that's not always how it is, and your voice isn't always listened to. Um, you know, it's it's a subjective business, so it's so easy to say you know no to that joke, and you never get to test it, right? Right. <laughs> uh, right. So, but yeah. what it, does your daughter say? It's getting better. Does she experience? Um, again, it's the showrunner, and it's the show. Yeah, she's had better experiences on some shows than others, um, but uh, yeah, it's it, you know it's got to be tough because you know I, everyone talks about how the writers' room can get rather wild and rather crude, and how you know you sort of need that to you know, to perpetuate creativity and that, that type of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth to that, but also it, you know, you look at the other side. I didn't and, see you and, you and David as being super crude guys. We're not, no, we're not. Right. Yeah, so I no. think that's, that's. But there, and there are, but there are some shows Sure. You know, I mean, when in, in 2006, there was a um, there was a lawsuit um, filed friends. against friends yeah. by a um, by a writer's assistant who said it was a sexually charged, horrible, toxic atmosphere. And they maintained, well, she just wasn't a very good um, <laughs> writer's assistant, and uh, and the California court sided with Friends and Warner Brothers, um, which, yeah, is you know, it, you know, there still is a line though to me because it's, well, it's it's one thing personal and there's professional. Yes, exactly. There's one thing to be doing a lot of Howard Stern 
right. you know, crazy ass jokes. And then there's another to to target people or or bully people. Yeah. And uh and in our rooms we never really allowed that. Um but I I must I must say we never allowed that not so much because we were enlightened in 1987 yeah. you know but because we didn't want writers having hurt feelings and then being mad at other writers right. and the staff and yeah. you know it's like we really wanted to promote a whole team great effort and we always had a lot of women on our staff i mean uh, David and I created three shows. Two of the shows starred women and were centered around women. And we always had women on staff. And um, one of the reasons we did was because, you know, we would be pitching something. Yeah. And, you know, Nancy Travis was was in our show Almost Perfect. And uh, so we'd go, okay, so her boyfriend does this. So then Nancy reacts by doing that. And then the woman or women well, in the room. Well, you with Robin. Yes. Schiff. Right, yeah. right. Would go, wait, what? No, that's not but the it, way. At Cheers, did you hire women? I mean, yeah, you had Janice, uh, but it wasn't 50-50. No, it wasn't 50-50. We had Heidi Perlman, and, and we did have, have women on staff. But a couple... Yes, just did a you couple. ever have two? But I never hired. Two? I never hired people on Cheers. <laughs> okay, so I know. I got, but let me ask you now: You have yeah. a daughter in the business, right? Would if you could do it over, would you advocate, promote, support more women when you had that power? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and for the most part, the women that we did use on Cheers, like Heidi Perlman and Sherry Steinkellner. Were fantastic, right? You know, were better than some of the well, male writers that we. Well, you have you know, to be. Yeah. Well, that's and the, that's and the true people too. who the men who fear equality the most are the mediocre men, right? So if you're listening and you're like, it's a meritocracy, you know, men. There should be more men in the room. It's you're mediocre. I'm sorry, you just are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that adds pressure for you too. Is that if you are the only woman in the room, you represent all women? Okay, so uh, they go, well, okay, she's not funny. Women aren't funny. Yeah. you know. So that's that's like a pressure no, that it, it that only guys... works one way though because. I'm in a room, you know. I think I represent women, but instead, what they get is, well, Nell's funny. Right. Oh, oh, interesting. <laughs> so okay. you, if if they're angry with you, you represent all women. But if you're good at what you do, you're the exception to the stereotype. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up Barry Kemp, and Barry comes from the Jim Brooks school. He was with. Well, with I think Taxi. he's in the Barry Kemp school, right? But but, <laughs> but I mean, in terms of mentoring and and yeah. that type of thing, he spent years on on Taxi and. I bring up Jim Brooks because when I was learning how to do this, for me, the gold standard was the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. And my favorite writer on the Mary Tyler Moore show was Treva Silverman. Uh-huh. So she wrote the best Rhoda episode. She wrote the best episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore show. So for me, 
it always seemed like, oh, sure, women were were part of it. And at MTM, you had Charlotte Brown, you had Pat Nardo and Gloria Banta. I know. I want to meet Charlotte Brown. Well, we'll walk after over. we'll walk over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so look, there I... were there were always there were always women, and so it didn't seem to me to be that unusual to to hire women. Right, but what happens is you get this. I think it's called sick cyclical discrimination where look I go to the 1990 Emmys you were probably there too yeah I probably lost that year for something <laughs> you did and um the five nominees for best comedy and these weren't these were all top 10 shows three and a half were created by women you had Murphy Brown you had Golden Girls you had Wonder Years which was co-created by Carol Black right. you had Designing Women and Cheers right Murphy Brown wins that year uh-huh. you know and so you you do think like we solved it and then the backslide starts because now that it's been solved you don't have to be proactive and promote women women are doing just fine is what you're thinking uh-huh. and they're not uh-huh yeah, and like, it, and it, like Tina Fey now is is so hot. So you would figure same thing. Okay. Well, did President well, Obama dismiss racism? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and it's the same thing. It's and again, it goes to the excellence. Yes, you you have the exceptional person who can break out, but you still at the the next tier. There's still so much favoritism towards white men. So. It really is affirmative action to men. I've, it gets me so angry that that term has been turned into something that, you know, helps women and, and people of color. It doesn't. Affirmative action has always helped white men. Interesting. Um, so what can you or we or anybody do to try to fix this and try to get more women writers in television. Um, and I'm sure this extends in oh, the insurance every, industry yeah, and, industry. and, and everywhere. But, um, yeah, are you actively trying to pursue, how, how do, you, how do we go about doing that? Look, the talent is out there. There there are people who call it a pipeline problem, right? That there are, just aren't enough women. I call bullshit. Um, it's a broken doorbell problem. And there are women and people of color who are standing at the door ringing the bell and no one is answering it. So it just needs to be changed. The... We need the companies, we need the studios and networks to say it's important and then continue to to not go, okay, well, you looked and you didn't find any. I guess you'll just keep making your show with no women. Like that's just, and people of color, like that should not be acceptable anymore. Well, it seems networks now are sort of feeling that pressure and in terms of staffing, they're looking for more diversity and they're looking for, you know, more It will women. make their shows better. I mean, I want to be really clear about it. That's a that good point. That's it, a great point. It will, you know, just what you were saying before, you had to turn to the women and say, is this right? Like, I um, tell the story and just the funny parts about how I was working on Warehouse 13 
and um, was had written uh, an outline where the agent um, Micah got magically impregnated, and as she as her pregnancy blossoms, she gets this acute sense of smell. So, um, which is what happens to a lot of pregnant women, and it happened to me. So I'm getting notes, and one of the um, uh, the executive says, well, this smell thing, is that real? <laughs> and <laughs> I realized there were eight people on the call, and I was the only one who had ever been pregnant. So listen, a, a good writer can write any character, can capture any voice. This isn't women can only write women. But there are certain experiences that only women have and know what it feels like. Well, you know, when I try to write women characters, um, you know, and I've been doing it a lot, you know, Sam and Diane and, yeah. and everything, and I like women characters, but there are... I like men characters. <laughs> there are certain times when I will come upon situations where I will be unsure as to how a woman might react. Yeah. And so what I do, and I know this is like really novel, is... I ask women. <laughs> <laughs> I ask the question. You know, I'll say, okay, I'll talk to my wife or I'll talk to writer friends or whatever. And I'll say, okay, here's the situation. Da, 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 da. What would you do? What would you say? How would you react? Because I, I want my scripts to be truthful. Okay, but so the next step is not just when you're stymied to ask a woman, but to give the whole thing to a woman and say... Is there anything that you, that you find offensive or untruthful, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. Right. Well, again, going back to Treva Silverman, who I have become really good friends with and, and I just revere, whenever I write a play after my first draft, the first right. thing I do is I give it to Treva. Yeah. And, um, and, and, She's she's great. She's you know very smart and uh, very insightful, and she's also very truthful. So when she says something works, then I really feel that it works. There was a play once that I gave her, and uh, she called me up and she said, "You know, the first act is is really good." Um, I love you, but uh, you have no second act. <laughs> this, the second act goes nowhere. That's a good title. Yeah. I love you, but you have no second, second act. act. <laughs> it's a good play. And, um, and I completely threw out the second act and, and did something else. But yeah, ex exactly. Because yeah. I don't know what I don't know. Right. But you know, I don't want women sitting in the audience going, has this guy ever met a woman? <laughs> right. No, and it's like, you know, it it's, goes back to what you said about Cheers being a team. It's all a team. And I I feel like Hollywood should move from these ego-based hierarchies to these mission-based hierarchies where, you know, the goal is to make the best TV show yeah, possible. Yeah, best joke wins. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, to, to really create an atmosphere where people feel safe. 
Um, yeah, I was on the Muppets when they relaunched in 2016. How's Miss Piggy, by the way? Because I heard she I was a diva. Her. Really? Yeah, she oh, was okay. Perfect. Right. She didn't like rent her trailer or anything. She's okay. Look, she wants all the oxygen in the room. Don't right. get me wrong. But <laughs> if you give her that, she's okay. fantastic Good. to work with. Okay. Um, and there was a joke that uh, all the women in the room could not stop laughing about. And the showrunner, who was male, refused to put it in the episode. And in fact, I actually made hand, uh, ordered hand towels for the ladies' room that had the joke on them because <laughs> we were all so delighted um, by this uh, phrase. And it never saw the light of day. Yeah, no, we always, two things. It's like, best joke wins, and if somebody pitches a joke, and it gets a big laugh. Yeah. It goes in just that way. Yeah. We then don't start stabbing the frog and tinkering with it. And I love blah, blah, blah. That. it's like this is the even though it, it sounds sort of weird and illogical, everybody laughed hard at this. So this goes in. I don't want to be here till four o'clock in the morning rewriting a joke that works. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. what's next for you? Oh, so um, I still have ideas for TV shows. I wrote two pilots last year. Neither went forward. But, um, you know, uh, as I talk about in the last chapter with Irv Brecker, I would have <laughs> one more shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, you know, I turned on West Home and Irv lived right on the corner there in, you know, one of those Wilshire apartment buildings oh, where uh-huh. they joke, you don't call a taxi, you call an ambulance. <laughs> I live in Westwood by the uh, – there's there's a Wilshire Corridor where there are all these high-rise apartment buildings. Well, yeah. I'll end up there. It's where well, old writers hey, go to hey, die. Hey, Billy Wilder used to live around the corner. Exactly. Yeah, yeah very cool. Um, and also, so I've directed a couple of cable movies and would love to direct again. I'm doing a rewrite on a script. Um that I hope to go out with soon. Great. Well, Nell, this has been fantastic. Again, uh, love your book. You know, the host always has to do this at the end. Go, so the book is just the funny parts <laughs> and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. Do you have an audio version? I do. And, and did you do it yourself? I did not. <laughs> My friend. <laughs> who, who does you? Amy Hone, who's a great Broadway actress okay. and um, has a very similar sense of humor. Uh-huh. Uh, and her voice isn't dull and flat like No, mine. your voice is fine. <laughs> hey, hey, I did my audio book. Well, and it's like, you... yeah, but uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah, that was uh, the other thing. You know, oh. I'm thinking, Jesus. But it was worth it. Really? No. It was worth it no, to, no, to I'm watch that, Amy I'm, do I'm it for me. I'm saying this hoping people will go, well, maybe I'll buy his book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, no, buy Ken's book. No, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. No, it was lots and lots of hours <laughs> to, to do it. Thanks, Nell. Thanks, Ken. And we never got into space, ghost, coast to coast. I'm just going to have to have Nell back. Thanks to Nell. Also thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler and to Howard Hoffman. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine if you want to get in touch with me for any reason. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And you can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. (laughs) 